y'all got a Bible, you can turn to John 4. A big uh, kind of ministry week this week. We did this men's deal on Tuesday. And we had Park Street Soccer on Friday, a little mid-season game. Then there was a camping day for our elementary school kids on Saturday, and we did a fall festival at Park Street. And all of that takes a lot. And I appreciate we appreciate those of you who give. That stuff's expensive. We appreciate those of you who serve. We know most of you don't have a lot of time, and we appreciate you serving in this church and in the community, and we um, for sure covet your prayers. We're so thankful for those of you who pray for our church and our city every week. In a week like this, it's just I, I see it more than maybe I do on a normal week because there are so many things going on, and I do appreciate all that y'all give a week in and week out. All right, so Jesus has been on a journey. He's going from the south to the north. He was in Judea. He was baptizing. He got popular. The Pharisees, religious leaders, find out that, that they're made aware of Jesus' popularity, and so he leaves. I don't think he's scared of them. I think at this point it's just not time for him to have a confrontation with the religious leaders. So he moves from the south in Judea to the north in Galilee. That's where he's from. And he passes through Samaria. And he passes through Samaria, the Bible says, because he had to go. He was led by the Father. It wasn't had to because of any geographic limitations. It was because he was led by the Father through Samaria. And he stops at a well about a mile outside of a town called Sychar, S-Y-C-H-A-R. And he meets a woman there. And the result of this conversation, spiritual conversation he has with this woman that he meets at a well, is he's invited back into this town, Sychar, and he spends about two days there. And many people believe, and that's very much unheard of. These are Samaritans. They're half-breeds according to the Jews, they're unclean according to the Jews, they're heretics in many ways according to the Jews, and yet they've received Jesus in numbers in this city. And now Jesus has moved on to Galilee, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning, Jesus finishing his trip. A couple of transitional verses before we get into a conversation Jesus has with, um, with, a, with a father. After the, after the two days, so those are the two days that he spent in Sychar, Jesus left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had been there also. So we're going to pause there. So Jesus arrives in his hometown. Here's a map to maybe help you. So he was... Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the green star in Judea, but he didn't spend a lot of time there. He was only there briefly as a baby. He was raised in Nazareth, that yellow star in Galilee. So that's his hometown. And uh, when we read, a prophet has no honor in his own country, that's John making an editorial comment. It, to me, it kind of sets us up because Jesus is going back to his own country, to his hometown, that in a sense that he, that he would not receive honor. Honor is to ascribe worth or value to someone. And so I think, well, if Jesus is going back to Galilee and Jesus said prophets have no honor in their own country, well, he's not going to be honored in Galilee. But then the next sentence says he was welcomed by the Galileans. And so we have this instance where Jesus is being welcomed. But in my mind, I'm thinking he's still not going to be honored, right? Or why else would John put that little parenthetical comment there in the story? So... Jesus is being welcomed, but he's not being honored. He's being shown maybe some measure of hospitality, but he's not being ascribed the worth and the value that he is due. And I think all of that is related to that last sentence. 
there were some Galileans who were in Jerusalem and they saw Jesus perform some signs. So this goes all the way back to chapter 2. So it's been several months. We don't know exactly how long, but I would say several months since Passover. And during Passover, all of the righteous Jews would travel from wherever it is they lived to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival for a week. And so we've got some Galileans who make the trek to Jerusalem, about a three-day walk. And so they make the trek to Jerusalem, and during that week, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's in John chapter 2. We looked at that several weeks ago. He drives out the money changers. He turns over the tables, the, everybody who's selling animals, and he says, Y'all are making my father's house a den of robbers. And then, according to John, he performs some unnamed, some unspecified signs. We don't know what Jesus did, but he did some other things. And John makes these comments. While Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people, so that includes some Galileans, saw the signs Jesus was performing, and they believed in his name, which we think that would be great. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in everyone. So we have Jesus, we said this before, that literally means Jesus doesn't trust, and he doesn't believe in their belief. There's something about the belief of these people who are trusting in Jesus because of signs that they see. It's inadequate, it's insufficient, it's shaky. And so Jesus won't entrust himself fully to them. So what I hear are the Galileans are welcoming Jesus home, but there's something, uh, because they're in this John 2 group of people who've seen him perform signs in Jerusalem, they're missing something about who he is. They can welcome him, but they don't honor him. They're not giving him the worth and the value that he deserves. They're seeing him maybe just as a miracle worker and maybe not as the Messiah. And so keep that in mind as we read this encounter with this um, desperate father. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged Jesus to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So another map just to help you orient yourself. Jesus' hometown is Nazareth down there in southern Galilee. He was in Cana, that kind of red star there in the upper left corner. And this royal official lived in Capernaum, the green star. That's about 20 miles away, so it takes a day to walk that. So we have a royal official, so he's a Jew who works for the Roman government. They were called Herodians because Herod was the king. And so they were, dis they were disliked, maybe even despised by their fellow Jews because they were seen as traitors. They're working for the enemy. Rome is this pagan, oppressive government, and you're choosing to make your living working with them. And so they were not well-liked. And so this royal official who has a son who's near you know, near death, on death's door, he takes a 20-mile walk to Cana because he hears that Jesus is there, and he begs him. 
he begs him to come and heal his son. And the exchange between those two is really stilted to me and kind of odd. So we have a desperate father who's saying, come and heal my son. And Jesus' response is, unless y'all, he's speaking plural, not just to this man, but whatever crowd is around him, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. If you don't see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And then that seems to lack compassion and to be a bit out of place. And then the father doesn't even seem to hear him. It doesn't register. He just says, sir, you got to come down to my house. And then Jesus just says, go home. Just go home. Your son will live. Very interesting exchange to me. So we have an official who's probably used to people doing what he says. Probably never begged for anything in his whole life. And he comes to Jesus and he's begging him to come back with him to Capernaum to heal his son. There were other people who were considered healers and miracle workers in this time period, but they always had to be close to the person who they were trying to help. They had to be physically near. And so this guy's saying, I I saw what you did in Jerusalem. I think he was part of that crowd. He saw these signs that Jesus performed. And he's saying, you got to come back and kind of work your magic, so to speak, on my son because he's dying. And Jesus says to him, no, I'm not, I'm not coming. And so this guy has a dilemma. So if you feel like you know, you're, one of your kids is, on again, on death's door, and you've, you've spent a day walking to Cana, and so now Jesus has sent you home, so it's going to be a day for you to walk back. And then if your son's not any better, it's going to be a day for you to come back again to Cana, and you may not even find Jesus. He wanders around. He may not even be there then. But if he is there then and you can't convince him to come back uh, to your hometown, it's going to be another day back to Capernaum. So you're talking about burning three days when you don't know how many days your kid has. That's a dilemma. If I leave, what's what's going to happen? What if he's wrong? What, What if nothing happens? What if he's just trying to blow me off or brush me off? But this guy, John says, takes Jesus at his word. He believes what Jesus said to him. Jesus has just rebuked the crowds, including this man. Unless you see signs and wonders, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And now we have this man, and and he chooses to turn and walk away when he hadn't seen anything. He He chooses to take Jesus at his word. He believed the word that was spoken. That's literally what the text says. He believed the word that was spoken even without any visual confirmation. That his son was healed. He couldn't make a phone call and say, how's my son? Jesus just pronounced tent, said he would live. So he starts a long 20-mile trek back, and on his way the next day, a servant comes and meets him and says, you're not going to believe it. Your son is, is living. He's doing better. His fever broke. When did this happen? One o'clock, the exact same time that Jesus said it would. To me, that's an expression of faith from this royal official. The fact that he's willing to turn around and walk home without any visual confirmation that his son is getting better, without any way of of knowing if his son is getting better, risking his son's life in a sense, at least three days of it, of back and forth in case if Jesus is wrong. And so to me that's an expression of faith. And what John says about this is that scene, that's the second sign that Jesus performed in Cana. The first sign was when Jesus turned water into wine. You remember that? We talked about that. Uh, several weeks ago, and we're supposed to connect those two together, and they seem really different. Uh, running out of wine at a wedding reception would be socially terrible. It would be very, it would be embarrassing, it would be humiliating even. 
but we're talking about a boy who's about to die here. Those things don't seem to kind of be on the same plane, but John wants us to hold both of these signs together. And if you read them together, and we don't have time to do that, I don't know if the print up there is too small for you to see anyway, but uh, they're, they're structurally they're identical. You have the exact same structure. There's a need. Someone presents Jesus with the need. Jesus rebukes the person who presents the need to him, but then he proceeds to work a miracle. He performs a sign, and the result of that sign is a small number of people believe. They're done. These miracles, these signs, are, they're very uh, private. You, we have this guy's household believes, this royal official. When Jesus turned water into wine, it seems like the only people who knew were the servants who filled up the water jars with water and then drew out water and it was wine. It doesn't seem like it's widely known. It's, it's, again, it's, it seems very personal and private. The feature about those signs that strikes me is his rebuke. He rebukes his mother and he rebukes this royal official. And people may say, well, yeah, the royal official, he's a Herodian. We don't really like those guys. Rebuke away. But your mom, they're respected and honored and... It almost seems mean what you're saying to Mary in John chapter 2 when you say, why are you involving me in this? My hour has not yet come. Remember, signs are miracles that reveal something about Jesus' identity. It's not just what he does. It's how what he does reveals some aspect of who he is. And I think the revealing of who he is is in that rebuke. When he says to his mom, why are you involving me in this? My hour has not yet come. What he's doing, I think, is he's differentiating himself from her. He's distancing himself from his mother. He's not cutting her off at all. But he's saying from the beginning, this is the first miraculous thing we see in the Gospel of John. And so from the jump, from the outset of his public ministry, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, swayed or dictated to or coerced by even by my mom, even by a close family relationship, even by this circumstance that could be disastrous for her and for the people who are, who are holding this wedding reception. I, my hour hasn't come. I'm only directed by the Father. And we can see that when he goes to Samaria. He had to go. Why? Because the Father led him. He says things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's in the Gospel of John. And as we read through John, we'll see Jesus does that repeatedly. Again, he's not, it's not like he's shoving people away. He's just making it very clear that his primary loyalty is to his Father, and he is primarily directed by his Father. Not even by his mom. Maybe the closest human relationship he has. Even with her, he's saying, you don't, you're not pulling any strings. For me, with me. I only do what I see the Father doing. I'm led by Him. And so what does that reveal to us about Jesus? He has a unique relationship with the Father and everything that we see from Him is things that He is doing out of obedience to the Father. And this royal official, you people, y'all, you, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. What Jesus is saying there, I think, is he is a miracle worker. He does perform signs, but he's looking for more than amazement. That's not enough. It's not enough to be amazed by him. And as we read through the Gospel of John, we'll realize what he's looking for is people who are devoted to him. He's looking for people who are in deep relationship with him, not just people who are astonished at his power. He, he, he's not working magic tricks for people. He absolutely is a miracle worker, but he's more than that. And what he's looking for from followers is not just people who are amazed because he's doing things that they want him to do. 
And we'll see that playing out throughout the Gospel of John as well. I want to close with this. You may disagree with my, some of the details here, but I think you can still pull something. Um, even if you disagree with the details, I think you can pull something from the general idea. This man, this royal official, what I see in him is uh, the progression of belief. I see his belief growing over time. It's kind of like time-lapse photography. What's happening over here? We okay? Oh, that's great. Maybe better than me. Okay, that's great. I'm going to keep going then if it's just that. I just didn't know if anybody, everybody was okay. Somebody needed the phone call. So here's what we're going to do. So this guy, we talked last week about the Samaritan woman. There's, it's almost like time-lapse photography. She goes from seeing Jesus as a stranger to seeing Jesus as a prophet to seeing him as a Messiah in just a couple of hours, just one conversation. And that's pretty unusual, even miraculous almost, to see that level of growth and understanding in such a short period of time. And we see the same thing here. It's, again, it's kind of like time-lapse photography. In Mark 4, Jesus talks about uh, the way a, a, a seed turns into a, a stalk of wheat. He says, you know, a farmer sows seed. We talked about that last week. And whether he's awake or he's asleep, the soil produces a stalk and then a head and then a full kernel in the head. And then the farmer comes back and reaps. And what you see here with this man, I think, is that growth process. Again, it's just compressed into the, just a handful of verses. Normally it takes longer. And, and when I'm looking at him and I'm seeing him in Jerusalem, I think he was in Jerusalem. I think he saw Jesus perform cleanse the temple. I think he saw Jesus perform some unnamed signs, and I think he locked in his brain there's something different about this guy. And then I think when his son was desperately ill and nobody could help him, I think he found out he was in Cana and thought he can help. And so that's why he went and begged Jesus to come home. And when Jesus says, go home, your son is well, your son will live, I think it was a, a, a significant moment for him when he turned and walked away and went back home. It was another expression of faith in this guy. And all of that was confirmed on the road when he's walking home and this servant comes and says, Hey, your son's fever broke at, the, at 1 o'clock, which is the exact time Jesus said it would. You know, we want to know the question like, when did he get saved? When did he cross the line? When did he become a Christian? I don't necessarily know the answer to that. I'm not sure that's a great question. I think if he was a part of Stonebridge and he wanted to be baptized and we said, listen, tell us a turning point in your life. When, when did you begin to follow Jesus? He may say, I'm not exactly sure. And some of you may be able to relate to that. I'm not exactly sure, but I have these milestones in my life. I have these Ebenezer moments. That word is taken from 1 Samuel 7, 12, where Samuel is leading the Israelites in battle against the Philistines and they win. And Samuel takes this big rock and says, this is Ebenezer because thus far has God helped us. And if you can imagine in a battle where you're fighting for territory to set up a rock and say, thus far has God helped us, you can look back and say, this is all the land that he's given us. And the same thing is true spiritually. To have an Ebenezer is to say, thus far, up to this point, God has helped me. You can read throughout the Old Testament, there are these piles of rocks that the Israelites uh, create. When God does something significant, there's nothing fancy about him. It's just to serve as a reminder. This is what God did in this place. And Ebenezer is similar. And that's what I think this guy would maybe say as he was getting baptized. I have these mile markers, these Ebenezers, where God met me. And 
he helped me. I was in Jerusalem for Passover like a good Jew, and then I saw this guy, and I heard this guy, and there was something different about him. I didn't have a conversation with him. I didn't know much about him, but I saw the signs that he performed, and I was intrigued, and I knew there was something different about Jesus. And then when my son was desperately ill and the doctors couldn't help and the medicine didn't work and I looked at my wife and said, what do you want to do? We were out of options. And then I heard Jesus was 20 miles away in Canaan. I made a decision in that moment to leave my dying son and go get Jesus and do whatever I had to do to bring him back. That was an Ebenezer moment for me where my whatever level of trust I had in him it grew. Remember, trust, belief in John is not what you think, it's who you trust. And then when I begged him to come back and he didn't, and he looked me in the eye and he said, go home, your son will live. That was a, that was a pivot point for me because I knew if I went home, I may never see Jesus again. And I had no idea of knowing whether my son was was better, whether Jesus was just blowing me off, trying to get rid of me, I didn't know. Who's ever heard of somebody who can heal from 20 miles away? But when I turned and I walked away, that was an Ebenezer moment for me. And then when the next day when my servant came and met me on the road and told me my son was getting better, and that confirmed everything that I thought about Jesus. And so me and my whole household are now believing in him. I think those are milestone moments for him and we want to know well when did he get saved like what if he got mauled by a lion on the way back home before the servant came and said your son was healed would he be in heaven or not we're asking the wrong question God invites us into an ever deepening intimate personal relationship with him when we think of salvation primarily as going from being guilty to being righteous that's 100% true. It's, it's just insufficient. God forgives us of our sins, not just to declare us righteous, but in order to be able to relate to us ongoing. He's looking for a relationship. He's not just slamming a gavel down and saying, now you're righteous, go and live your life and I'll see you when you die. He's inviting us into an ever-deepening, personal, intimate relationship with him. And if we miss that, we miss a lot of what he's trying to do in our life. I have some good friends of mine. They've been married 20 plus years and they're in marriage counseling now. Their marriage is really strong. And I asked this guy, I was like, why are you doing that? It costs a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It can kind of dig up stuff. Why are you in marriage counseling? He said, our marriage is good, but I want it to be great. And I think about that when my relationship with Jesus, and I don't know if you think about it with yours, are you content? Or would you say it's good, but I want it to be great? If Jesus is inviting you into this ever-deepening, personal, intimate relationship with him, think of it, he's inviting you to come and sit with him and eat with him, and many of us are content to lean against the back wall. We're just glad we're in the room. Can you imagine, picture a relationship in your own life that you value highly. Spouse, kid, parent, best friend, whatever. Now picture yourself tomorrow going to whoever that person is and saying to them, listen, just want to make sure we're on the same page. Can you give me the minimum amount that is required of me for you to not get upset? Like, how much time do, we, do you need a week? 30 minutes? And what, what do you need? Your birthday's coming up. Is a card okay? 
Do I have to give you a present? What's the dollar amount? I just want to make sure that we're okay. What's the minimum that you need from me? Who does that? We do all the time with Jesus. Tell me the boxes I need to check to make sure you don't hurl lightning bolts at me or cause my business to fail or my kids to go off the rails. Like, just show me. What, what do I need to do? We don't recognize what he's inviting us into, the level of access that we have because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that the God of the universe is saying, come on, like, keep coming. He never tells us to stop. The picture in Hebrews, the veil has been torn. That's a reminder of the old temple where there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the high priest, one guy, one time a year on the Day of Atonement, could walk through that veil. And they tied a rope around his ankle in case he died while he was in there. So they could pull him out. Because nobody else could go in there. They were going to die too. And according to the writer of Hebrews, when Jesus died and rose again, that veil was torn. That means there, there's no barriers. We have access into the most holy place whenever we want. And we say... What's the minimum? I'm just, I'm just, I just don't want to burn when I die. And I think it breaks God's heart because he's like, do you, do you realize what I'm offering you? Do you realize what I'm offering you? We just want to know when did he get saved? And we miss this ever deepening, this intimate, this personal relationship that God is saying, keep, you, you just keep coming. I'm never going to say stop. You just keep coming. Two things you can think about when you think about this relationship with the Lord. Process and breakthrough. Process is every day. It can seem kind of mundane. It's most of our life. The daily, the commonplace. What you're doing in terms of this ever-deepening, intimate, personal relationship with the Lord when it comes to process is you're engaging in whatever practices help you stay connected to Jesus. Things like prayer, worship, reading the Bible. Some people journal. Some people spend time in silence, being a, coming to corporate worship, being a part of a small group. Those different practices that help you stay connected to Jesus. In John 15, he talks about abiding in him. What are the things that keep me connected? That's process, and it can seem boring and dull. And so for many of us, over time, we give in to apathy. We just quit. And you can apply this to that relationship you were just thinking about, that human relationship you have with that person that's special and important to you. And uh, if that as that relationship progresses over time, you probably can look back and say, yeah, the, the fire waned a little bit there. It can be difficult over time to remain intentional. And if that's you, I would encourage you to re-engage with the Lord. Just make a choice. Allow your behavior, even when you don't have this emotion behind it, allow the discipline of choosing to connect to fuel the desire that you have to feel connected. Let the discipline lead you in that. Decide to pray. Decide to worship. Decide to read. God will meet you there. For some of us, we're good Christian boys and girls. We've been doing this for a long time, and so we fall into ruts. These kind of religious rituals, devoid of faith, we're box checking. Every morning I wake up at the same time and I read the same devotional book and then I pray the same prayer and then I move on with my day. It's better than not doing that. Not super helpful though. We want to, we, we want to engage in faith. God, I believe that you're actually going to meet me here. 
I believe that this, whatever that this activity that I'm doing actually helps me stay connected to you. I'm not doing it to keep you off my back for the day. I'm doing it to engage with you as I begin my day or end my day. And so if that's you, if you fall into a religious rut, I would say just do something different. Super simple. Change it up. Read a different translation of the Bible. That'll change things for you. You won't have the whole thing memorized. Pray at a different time. Pray if, you're, if you normally kind of pray whatever comes to your mind, pray the Lord's Prayer for a while. It's different. It's structured, and it'll, it'll push you. If you normally pray those kind of structured prayers, pray spontaneously. Just do something different, and that will re-engage your heart, I think. You already have the discipline, so let's just freshen it up a little bit, that you're meeting the Lord, that you're doing those things in faith. Process and then breakthrough. Breakthrough are the occasional times, and you can define occasional. The occasional times where God works we would say miraculously or supernaturally in our lives where he breaks through into our life and it's not every day or then it would be regular. It would not be a breakthrough. So these are occasional times where God moves supernaturally or miraculously in our lives or in our circumstances. For some of us, we chase signs. Most of those people don't go to church here. You go somewhere else if that's what you're doing. But there are some people, we chase signs. We try to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. And what Jesus would say to you, if that's you, is your faith is insufficient. What Jesus would say, and hear this with compassion, is I'm not going to entrust myself to you. I don't believe in your belief in me. That's John 2. That is, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. What Jesus would say, that's not sufficient. I don't want to amaze you only. I want you to be devoted to me. And that has a different foundation than amazement. I'm a miracle worker for sure, but your relationship with me can't be based on signs and wonders and miracles. It's got to go deeper. But for most of us, that's not the ditch that we fall into. We fall in the other ditch where we completely forget, neglect, ignore that we serve a God who's all-powerful and all-loving and who still works, who can heal somebody from 20 miles away or 2,000 miles away. We forget that we serve a God who can heal someone who's been. Struggling with the same thing for 12 years. And all they have to do is grab a hold of his robe and they're healed. We forget he can heal someone who's been hunched over for 18 years. And he can say, stand up straight. And she does. We have so much in our Western affluence that we can tend to forget. We have an all-powerful and all-loving God who still, to this day, steps in. He breaks through. He hasn't quit. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't understand all of the ins and outs of that. But it doesn't negate the fact that we serve a God who breaks in and a God who breaks out. And so my invitation to you and challenge to you this morning is you don't have to walk 20 miles. I'm asking you to walk 20 steps this morning if you need a breakthrough in your body, if you need a breakthrough in a relationship, if you need a breakthrough, if, you, if you're uh, engaging in destructive patterns and you know they're destructive and you try to stop and you just can't. You would say, I'm in chains and you need a breakthrough. 
Let's ask God to do that. If you need a breakthrough and, and you don't, maybe you can't see the future very clearly, you don't know where to go, you're asking God for direction, you need a breakthrough. Let's pray for God to do that. And don't say, well, somebody else needs it more than me. That's irrelevant. God doesn't just give a couple of tickets and say, two people get a breakthrough today and then I'm done. His resources are infinite. Don't put your, don't put your need on a scale relative to other people. The question is, do you need a breakthrough? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then let us pray for you. You don't have to work anything up. You don't have to justify anything. You're coming as a son or a daughter, and you're saying to your Heavenly Father, fix it. Fix it. And He'll work how He works, and we, all we're going to do is ask. We're going to expect Him to move, but we're not going to place expectations around what that looks like. And we're certainly not going to put pressure on you to respond in a certain way. We're just going to ask God to fix it as His sons and as his daughter. So if you're on ministry teams this week, if you would come forward. It's 1245. We're going to um, be done at 1250. So five minutes. We started a little late to make sure everybody could get in. And so we're going to run a little late. And Bo is going to lead us in a time of worship. If you're not coming forward, I'd encourage you to pray for the people who are up here from your seat. Just pray for God to break through in their life. You certainly don't have to know anything that's going on, but you can pray. And I want to, again, strongly encourage you, if you need a breakthrough, please let us pray with you this morning. You guys can stand. I'll say a brief prayer, and then Bo will take it from there. God, we do thank you that you work. We thank you that you're not impotent, and we thank you that you're not unconcerned. You're both all-powerful and all-loving. And so my prayer is that those who need a breakthrough this morning first, I pray you'd fill their heart with peace. They wouldn't feel pressure. There'd just be peace in their heart. And they would come forward without, um, they would just come, and that you would meet them in whatever ways that you see fit. God, my prayer is just like this guy. On their way home, they would get news that something has changed. It would be that sudden and that quick, and that you would do more than they could ask or imagine because you're a good father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys come forward as you.